We are in part three of our Open Your Eyes series in the book of Jude. So would you take out your Bibles with me? Turn to the book of Jude if you need one. There might be one under the seat in front of you. And that would be page 1027. Uh, we are in part three of this series and I entitled the message, Awaken to the Wrath of God. That sounds like a good morning start. Sounds like a little devotional. Maybe you can share with your kids. Fantastic. I have some ideas that I want to share with you as we begin today. And it is this. There are certain axioms or certain truths that have really helped me understand Christianity and why the Bible says what it says and how things work. And one of those axioms that I've kind of burned into my mind, it sounds a little dark, but it's very powerful to understand and unlock different things in scripture. And it's this, when someone sins, someone dies. When someone sins, someone dies. You got to memorize that. And here's why. The very idea of sin causing death was launched from the beginning. From the get-go, we go with Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve sin, they mess up, they screw up everything, and it said before that, they knew no shame. After that, they knew shame, and God clothed them. How did he clothe them? He clothed them with animal skins. Animals don't just unzip their skins and hand them to you when they're done with them. Someone dies. When someone sins, someone dies. The very Old Testament sacrificial system demonstrated this over and over ten thousands upon ten thousands of times to say when someone sins someone dies that means that if you had sin in your life you would bring an animal sacrifice that that animal would be killed in your stead in your place as somewhat of an iou to god and that animal no longer lives for without the shedding of blood there is not the forgiveness of sins the reason why this is so important is the fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you. And it is this, God doesn't just let things go. God doesn't just let things go. Our God is a righteous, pure, holy, majestic God. That means that he is not just the lover of our soul. He is the king of the universe. And if that is the case, he does not just let things go. That's not how justice works. That's not how righteousness works. God's love will never compromise his justice and God's justice will never compromise his love. They work together. And so God doesn't just let it go. That is no judge at all. It is not a righteous and good king that just lets bad things happen and lets people get hurt for no reason. Therefore, God doesn't just let it go. When someone sins, someone dies. When we talk about the wrath of God, we're talking about his anger, not necessarily towards a person, but against the sin that dwells within that person. God is not all right with things that violate his nature. He's not okay with cosmic treason. Therefore, when we use the phrase saved, and that is a Christianese term, when you're if you're brand new to church, you know what I'm talking about. We have a lot of irritating phrases. Uh, don't worry, they're irritating to us too. The phrase is, are you saved? What we mean is, are you a Christian? Have you ever given your life to Jesus Christ? Which is merely another way of using Christianese terms to describe Christianese terms, and that's not helpful. Are you 
a believer? Are you saved? When we say that, what we mean is, are you saved from the wrath of God? Wrath of God? Why would wrath of God be coming? Because it comes on all sin. Understand, all sin must be paid for. Sin just doesn't, oh, some of that, you know what, we just swept that one under the rug. There's no sweeping under the rug. All sin gets paid for. So either you're going to die for your sins or someone else is going to die for your sins. But someone dies for your sins. There will be no sin in heaven. All sin must be accounted for. Therefore, if there's sin upon you, you cannot get into heaven. That's the whole point. Therefore, Jesus Christ loved us to such an extraordinary degree that he demonstrated his love that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly, that he, to demonstrate the power of his love, for greater love has no man than this, that he give up his life for his friends, Jesus loved us so much that he said, I'll trade with you, I'll pay for your sin. You get my righteousness. Because he could not fathom in his mind the ones that he loved so desperately being destroyed in their sin. So he took the full wrath of the father upon him that his children might never have to. When we talk about being forgiven, God didn't let it go. He just switched who's paying for it. If every time you did something, your best friend was punched in the face and you went, look, I'm getting away with it. And he gets hit again. Hey, look, I'm getting away with it. He gets hit in the face again. No, someone's paying for it. It's just not you. What that means is sin still matters, but it's not on your account. This is the power of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness for his people. If you haven't already, turn with me to Jude chapter 1. We are in verse 8, and we are going to be going from 8 down to 16. And I want to recap where we're at. Jude is a uh, a pastoral heart speaking to his people saying, man, there are bad guys in your midst. So what I'm going to do is two things. I'm going to warn you Stay away from them and get them out of your church. Number two, let me put those guys on notice. Judgment's coming. And this is a ferocious letter. Let's just read these uh, portions here and see what God has to say for us. We begin in verse eight. It says, yet in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams defile the flesh. They reject authority and they blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael contending with the devil was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. And they are destroyed by all that they like unreasoning animals understand instinctively. Woe to them for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts. 
as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding only themselves, waterless clouds swept along by the winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things these ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires, their loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. So Jude, how do you really feel? It's not pulling any punches. Now, a couple of things you notice right off the bat. Number one, he's angry. Number two, you don't have a clue what he's talking about. All right, nobody does in this room, so don't worry, it's not just you, it's all of us. So let's go ahead and back up and read through it. And once we talk about the background, you're going to go, oh, that's what he meant. So let's dive into it. It begins like this. Yet in like manner, meaning that last time we were together, we covered three stories. We covered Israel disobeying God by not going into the promised land when he told them to. We talked about the angels coming from where they should have been into a place where they should not have been doing things they should not do. We talked about Sodom and Gomorrah who rebelled against God and their whole cities were destroyed. He said in a like manner of rebellion, being led astray by lust and pride in a similar manner, these people, these bad guys, relying on their dreams defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. Relying on their dreams, what do you mean? Well, I mean, we have two ways that that can work. The first one is literally they're caught up in the experiential dreaming element and allowing their dreams to dictate their theology and reality. They were really into mysticism and they were really into uh, subjective experience and they were allowing that to drive everything instead of the word of God. Or we can also look at it in this way. And I think both are true. Sometimes if you say something long enough, you believe your own press. You believe what you're thinking. Now your thoughts actually become reality to you. Do you understand that if somebody ever said to you, that you were worthless as a child, and then you said it for the next 20, 30, 40 years, you begin to believe it? You're bending your own reality. You're shaping what's going on by how you think about it. Well, these guys had talked themselves so much that they were fully believing that they could do whatever they wanted to do, attack whoever they wanted to attack, blaspheme who they wanted to blaspheme. And that is unacceptable. In doing so, in being caught up in their heads and not locked down in grounded reality of God, they ended up violating God in a variety of ways. They defile the flesh. That's a sexuality issue. They rejected authority of God and the church and they blasphemed, speaking ill of the glorious ones. Who are the glorious ones? Well, every other time that word doxa is used, it's referring to angels. Why were they blaspheming angels? We have no idea. 
But it seems that they were thinking, not only am I not under any leadership on earth, but even heavenly leadership has no stand on me. I can say whatever I want. I can scream whatever I want. I can blaspheme whatever I want. And they had no respect for anyone. So he uses an example. But... When the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. You know that story? No, probably not. Here's why. It's not in the Bible. In Deuteronomy, we are told that when Moses was 120 years old, which by the way, his life fit very neatly into a package. For the first 40 years, he was trained up with all the best strategy and all the leaders of Egypt. Then 40 years, he was in the desert learning how to be a shepherd of unwilling sheep. Then he led the Israelites for 40 years. And at the end of those three, 40 years, it was 120 years. God said, come here, boy, I want to show you something. Let him up on a high mountain called Mount Nebo. Said, that's the promised land. You can see it, but you can't go in it because you defied me. You're done. And God shut him down. It said that Moses was just as strong. His eyes did not grow dim. He was just as powerful and mighty at 120 as when he was 40. But God shut him down and said that God buried him and nobody knows where his burial place is. So where did Jude get this story? Interesting. He pulled it from extra biblical resources that the group knew at the time. He was not validating all of it. He was saying, as you remember... Even angels have respect for angels. That's the whole point of the story. What's fascinating is he's referring to what they believe is an extra biblical work called the Assumption of Moses. We do not have any of those manuscripts. We only have ancient documents that refer to it. So a bunch of people refer to a document that we do not have. Piecing those together, here's how the story goes. Now, this is not actually how it went. We know that because it's very laced with Greek thought. The way that the story goes is that after Moses died, Satan argued with Michael the archangel. Who is Michael the archangel? Well, we don't know. He's referred to in the Bible a couple different times. We only actually have two real names for angels used in the Bible. It's Michael or Gabriel. Gabriel's kind of the messenger guy. Michael's the fighting guy. And as an archangel, you can imagine he's very high up. He's kind of like the big dog angel. He is referred to as the prince of Israel. He's their bodyguard, their defender. In the original fall of Lucifer and his angels, Michael led the charge against him. In the end, in Revelation, he is the one that binds Satan in chains and throws him away for a thousand years. So Michael is this warrior, big dog angel. So he went to go get the body of Moses and do what God said. And Satan, in a courtroom drama, began to argue with God and said, no, he's mine. It's like, what do you mean he's mine? That's my man. He said, no, two things. Number one, he's made out of matter. He's made out of dirt. He's made out of earth and that's evil. So you don't get him, which we all know is bogus. The second thing is he said, he's a murderer and I get murderers. You remember it says in the Bible that Moses killed an Egyptian. So he's mine. No matter how irritating that argument was, Michael did not lash back at him and attack him personally. 
he ricocheted off God out of respect and said, the Lord rebuke you. If the archangel Michael treats the demonic with respect, who do these guys think they are? That's the point of the message. Let's keep moving. It says, but these people, these bad guys in this church, verse 10, blaspheme all that they do not understand. They're destroyed by all that they, like stupid animals, only understand instinctively. They're not thinking through it. They're just doing what they want to do with no respect or humility. Woe to them, verse 11, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. He just dropped three bombs on you. Do you know those stories? I hope not because I love story time. I'm going to tell you the stories. You ready to go? Here we go. So Cain and Abel right off the bat. You got Adam and Eve and they have two boys. Their first boy's name is Cain. Their second boy's name is Abel. As offering time came up and how they knew about offering time, I'm assuming they were instructed by their parents. But remember, this is post Garden of Eden. I don't know how much interaction they've had with God. But they heard all the stories about how mom and dad used to walk with God and everything used to be perfect and blah, 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 blah. That was mom and dad's thing. That wasn't my thing, right? Well, then offering time came. Now, Abel was kind of the shepherd boy. He took care of the sheep. So he brought his offering of a lamb. Cain worked the agriculture. He brought his offering of fruit. What they brought was not the problem. Now, some would argue and say, well, it has to be the shedding of blood and they should have known that and everything. I don't think it had anything to do with their offering item. I think that we can bring anything from the offering of our hearts. It's the manner that they did it. It says that when they presented it before God, God accepted Abel's and rejected Cain's. It says, quote, in Hebrews 11:4, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. Abel took it seriously. Cain did not. God rejects Cain. That's embarrassing. We know that when we get embarrassed, we get angry and defensive. So Cain lashes out, takes it out on his brother, kills him. God comes to him and said, what did you do? Cain said, I don't know what you're talking about. And God said, I have webcams all over this place. I know exactly what you did. Oh no, from this day forward, you are cursed and all kinds of stuff comes down on him. Cain's like, oh, it's unfair, blah, blah, blah. Listen, in Hebrew thought, Cain became known for three things. Selfishness, cynicism, and materialism. Our job right now is to figure out how much a Cain is dwelling in us. So let's talk about that. Cain didn't want to offer anything to God because he's thinking that's my stuff. Why should I give God my stuff? If that is your attitude, you are like Cain. Cynicism. Man, you know what? Nothing ever happens to good people anyway. Why should I bother? If that's your attitude, you're like Cain. And then the last one is what? Materialism. I only believe in what I can see, what I can taste, what I can touch. This whole baloney of supernatural. Oh, there's little spirits running about, whatever. That's bogus. You know what? I'm just playing this whole God game so that somehow it works out for me. But I don't believe any of it. If that's you, you're like Cain. Cain was rejected. 
The next story is Balaam's error. Do you know that that story? In, in the book of Numbers, Numbers 22 through 24, we come upon a story where there's uh, some guys that were scared. The Moabites were scared of the Israelites, the Jewish people. They were becoming numerous. And like a, a locust plague were coming across the land, defeating everybody. And the next crew was going to be the Moabites. So they said, we got to do something to win this war. So they run and get an independent prophet of God who's like a hired spiritual mercenary by the name of Balaam. And they bring him some people, some messengers and some money and said, hey, dude, we'd like to buy you so that you will use your superpowers to curse the Jewish people. Now, that doesn't sound like a very smart idea, but whatever they, you know, they're afraid So they hire Balaam. Balaam says, what's in the basket? They said, well, there's some money. All right, I'll go ask God. Why would you ask God that? Whatever. He goes over and he says, God, can I curse your people? And God goes, no. He's like, oh, goes back to him and he goes, sorry, God said no. So they go back to the king, said, no, bring more money and nicer people. So they go back to Balaam and he's like, what's in the basket? And they're like more. And he goes, let me go check with God. Now, why is he consistently going back and checking with God about stuff that he already knows? Because he's hoping that somehow the riches and God's will can somehow come together and he can have both of them. In other words, he's a lot like us. He goes in and he says, God, can I curse your people? And God says, hold up. You know what? Here's what we're going to do. I want you to go with them and I want you to do exactly what I tell you to do. And Balaam's like, it's not a no. (laughs) Run on. Okay. So he goes on and it says, and the Lord was against Balaam. Uh Oh, you don't want that. That's a bad thing. So he goes and he gets onto his donkey, right? Now, this is a donkey he's had for a long time. This is like high mileage donkey. This is, this is his personal donkey for a really long time. So he gets onto the donkey and he starts going down the road with two of his servants and he's going to go visit the bad king and tell him whatever God tells him. So as he's going along, all of a sudden donkey's walking along on the path and a huge angel of God with a sword ready to kill Balaam stands right in the way. And donkey's like, oh, angel, better move to the right. Let's go around, right? Because donkeys are smart. So he goes around the donkey. She goes around to try to get on the path. Well, that's irritating to Balaam because he can't see the angel. So he starts beating the donkey. I can't believe you're going against me. You got to get back on the path. And right. So he's yelling at her. So she just goes on and does her business. Well, then the angel teleports, wham, right in front of him again, right in front of the donkey. This time there's a wall on either side and donkey's like, must scoot around angel with a sword, right? So he's trying to go along the edge and crushing Balaam's leg into the wall. Now Balaam's really mad. So he starts beating the donkey all over again, right? Get back on the path. What's wrong with you? Blah, blah, blah. Keep going on. Teleports, wham, right in front of him again. This time there's nowhere to go. And donkey's like, can't go right. Can't go left. Fall over. Just fall, you know, the donkey's like, there's no other way for me to do this. We're going down, right? So he falls, she falls down on the ground. Balaam's beating her. I can't believe you fell over. You crushed my leg. Blah, blah, blah. Screaming at her. God opens her mouth. What are you doing? Stop hitting me. And he's like, 
well, you're making me look like an idiot. She's like, dude, you're the one talking to a donkey. You are an idiot. You're not even asking why you're talking to a donkey. There's some serious problems going on here. Here's the problem. And this is funny because the dialogue actually goes, she said, how long have I been your donkey? I've been your donkey for a really long time. Have I ever done any of this kind of stuff before? You need to check my track record. You're not even paying attention. And she's arguing. He's like, that's a really good point. And they're arguing back and forth. God opens up his eyes and he sees this huge angel and he's like, and he does what the donkey does. He falls over, right? And she's like, that's what I'm talking about. (laughs) Beat me, sucker. You didn't see what I saw. Like you fall over too. I don't know if she said that, but that's what I thought. (laughs) The angel said, Balaam, you have no clue, man. She just saved your life. I was ready to let her go, kill you three separate times. Man, your attitude is all wrong. It's all about you, right, buddy? Listen, I'm giving you a warning. You continue on your journey. You only do what I tell you to do. Nothing more. Now that's motivation. So Balaam moves on and he goes up to the king and he says, hey, I'm going to tell you up front. I can only do what God tells me to do. That was very clear on my journey here. The king said, whatever, whatever. So he takes him up on a mountain and says, those are the Jewish people of which Balaam is not a part. Those are the Jewish people. I would like you to curse them. So he goes up and he says, God, I need to say something over these people. And God said, all right, tell them this. Israel be blessed. So he blesses them. The bad king's like, wait, what? Dude, what did I pay you for? You just blessed them. I told you to curse them. He's like, hey, I can only do what God says. He does that three times. Finally, the king is like, this is ridiculous. I paid you to curse them. You blessed them three times. And Balaam says, hold on, I got another one. He comes out and says, oh, by the way, bad king, you're cursed. The whole thing reverses on him and it all falls apart. And the story shuts down there. Now, what was the error of Balaam? Trying to make monetary gain and trying to use God for your leverage. Were the bad guys doing that? Yeah, but the story ends up duplicating itself in a more nasty fashion right after that. Very short story. It says, and in those days, Israel began whoring themselves out to the gods of the Moabites, uh, worshiping Baal. So now we have Baal worship being introduced into Israelite culture. And God was against Israel. You don't find out till the New Testament that Balaam's the one that taught him how to get him to do that. So you now have him stepping outside of his appropriate place and not only doing wrong, teaching other people how to do wrong. Y'all following this? All right, last story, Korah's rebellion. Korah's rebellion goes something like this. In Numbers chapter 16, we're going back to when Moses was walking the Israelites through the desert. And, And the way that the structure worked was this. Moses was the big dog. His brother Aaron was the head priest and all his lineage were the priests who got to talk with God, minister before God and engage with God. The nation of Israel was broken into 12 chunks, all the 12 tribes of Israel, right? One of them was called the Levites because they came from Levi. The Levites were the temple helpers. They're set up teardown guys, but they got to be around God. They got to set up God's stuff. They got to carry God's stuff. They got to be blessed by God. They got to be ministers to the people. 
Well, eventually they grew jealous. Why do we have to carry God's stuff and only you guys get to touch God's stuff? Why do we have to be around God, but you get to talk to God? Can you imagine that really happening? Of course. So three bad guys led by Korah get 250 leaders on their team. They go up to Moses and say, you have gone too far. You think you're the prince of Israel. You think that you're the only one God talks to. You think that you're better than all of us. You know what? We all have God. God has moved among us from the very beginning. We all have the spirit of God around us and through us. So I don't know who you think you are, but you're out of line and we want you to step down. Well, what does Moses do? Moses is a humble man. And so what he does, he says, he falls on his face before God and says, well, let dad sort it out. Meet me tomorrow. And we're going to offer a sacrifice of incense to the Lord and let him sort it. The next morning, the 250 gather around. They all have incense. The incense all, uh, cups were made of bronze and they were like big cups where they would pour the incense and they'd put a, uh, a coal inside and it would burn it and it would smell nice. And that aroma would rise up before God. So they all have their cups. They're all standing there. Moses, Aaron are on their faces. You got Korah and his two buddies and then the 250 people. And then on the outskirts is the congregation of Israel wanting to see what's going to happen. So there's a showdown. Moses says, God, they're saying this. You told me this. You need to be very clear to them what you want. I don't care how it goes. Just tell them what you want. So God, what do you want me to do? And God said, I suggest you back up from them. Why? trust me on this one. It's not going to go well. Like, like, what are you going to, what are you going to do? Like, I don't know, ground swallow them, stuff like that. Back up is what I'm trying to tell you to do. Just listen to me. All right. So Moses said, all right, everybody, here's the proof. If they die a natural death and nothing happens, then, Hey, I'm lying. But if, if something like the earth swallows them up or something like that, then you know that God has spoken. So I'm going to suggest all of you move away from their tents. Everybody just kind of backs up, right? And sure enough, right then when he finished talking, wham, an earthquake hits. The whole earth opens up. Their whole tents fall down into the pit and it closes over top. Now that'll strike fear into the hearts of everybody. Everyone's like, ah, right? Then all of a sudden fire races out of the tent of meeting, burns all 250 guys, incinerates them. And their little cups go ding, 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 ding on the ground. Oh my gosh, how is that not going to rattle everybody's cage, right? Burns up everybody. So the next morning, the congregation of Israel comes to them and they're mad at Moses again. You got to assume that you should probably leave Moses alone. You just saw people get incinerated and they go, oh great. Now what? Everyone that challenges you, what? You're just going to burn them up. What is wrong with you, man? Now you're the problem and blah, blah, blah. And Moses said, God, what do you want me to do? And he goes, I would back up if I were you. 
And he's like, oh no, they fall down before God and a plague strikes across the land. They're laying on their face and Moses looks at Aaron. He's like, Aaron, we've got to intercede for them. These are our people. And man, they have messed up everything. Go grab this incense and offer it before them in the midst of the assembly. So Aaron's running. It's completely like in slow motion. He's running like crazy and he's diving right in front. You can see the plague sweeping across the place. He dives right in the middle and offers it and the plague stops by that time 14,700 people are dead don't mess with God's leadership you understand why Jude told these stories I mean they're pretty powerful listen they were overstepping their boundaries God said listen this is your job stop trying to get in on his job do your job Quit thinking that you can tell everybody what to do. Stop assuming on me. I put in a structure. When I put in a structure, you submit to it. That's what I do. But these guys didn't care. So he describes them, verse 12. They are hidden reefs that wreck ships. At your love feast, they feast with you without fear. That's when they would come together for a fellowship meal, for communion. They would come to church and they were having cliques and they didn't care about anybody and they were getting drunk and they were, it was just a mess. They have no respect for anybody. They are shepherds feeding only themselves. They are leadership that helps no one. They are waterless clouds swept along by the winds, promising rain but delivering nothing. They are fruitless trees in late autumn when you would gather the fruit so they didn't have any fruit and they were also uprooted so they were dead twice. They're like wild waves of the sea, uncontrollable, casting up the foam of their own shame, making a lot of noise but only leaving behind driftwood and garbage. They are wandering stars, like a falling star that you can't navigate by. But then he quotes the book of Enoch again talking about fallen angels, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. For it was about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, in other words, when you read the genealogy, it goes Adam's number one, and then you count down the guys that they wrote down, and Enoch is the seventh. Seven is the perfect number. So he said the seventh from Adam, he prophesied. Now, he's quoting the book of Enoch, which isn't all legit, But it's possible that that book locked down an oral tradition of a real prophecy throughout history. And it said, behold, the Lord comes with 10,000s of his holy ones to execute judgment on all. Who's he talking about? The coming of Jesus Christ to sort everything out, the good and the bad. And when it comes to the bad, what is he going to do with them? It says it right here. To convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. God doesn't just let things go. These men, in practicality, are grumblers and malcontents. Those words reflect back to the wanderings in the desert when the people grumbled against Moses and against God and said, my life's miserable. Everything's a problem. Everything's hard. I don't like any of this stuff. Even the blessings of God aren't useful. They're malcontents. It means they will find something to complain about everything. 
even a blessing becomes a problem in their mind. Oh, great. Now I have all this stuff to handle. And now there's a problem. If that is you, you are being spoken to by God right now. Is that you? You always have a problem with everything. You got a pro- everybody else's problem. It's they're all messing up your life and, and it's the cards that you've been dealt in life and you're always miserable and whining about how nothing's ever good enough. Be warned. God does not deal lightly with grumblers. They are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They have no self-control. They are all about what do I feel like at the time I do whatever I want and no rules apply to me. Is that you? Is that me? They are loud mouth boasters. In Greek, that means they're swollen up with pride. They show favoritism and flattering just to gain advantage. They'll work anybody over to get what they want. Are you a manipulator? Am I a manipulator? Are we using one another? You can understand why Jude is so irritated. But know this. Whenever we see a judgment against a bad guy in Scripture, your question as a believer is to say, Lord, how much of that spirit dwells in me? When I first became a pastor, I was given a book to read called A Tale of Three Kings about Saul, David, and Absalom. And that author asked a question. He said, because in every leader there is both the spirit of Saul and the spirit of David, which one are you going to be like? Are you going to be the insecure, mad king that wants to hang on to power at any cost? Are you going to be the one that lashes out at everybody else? Or are you going to be the man of God that says, I let God sort it out. I will keep humility. I was a shepherd, and if God wants to make me a king, that's his business. What spirit are you going to feed in your life? I've never forgotten it. Because our job is not to go, good, at least he's not talking about me. Our job is to go, what part of me is he talking about? May we be warned. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, intense stuff. Lord, we are walking into this passage where, wow, Lord, there's laughter and there's joy and there's fear and there's, oh, it's just intense. And I just pray, Lord, that you would sort it with us. God, we all need a little different piece of that message. Lord, we need to know where it is that we are dishonoring you. We need to know where it is that we are the grumblers and the malcontents. We need to know, Lord, where the enemy has led us into his lies. God, where are we angry at you and cocky against you and where are we wrong lord as i prepare this message god different parts of my life kept flashing up that 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 i just pray lord that as i'm walking through and needing your purifying fire i pray that my brothers and sisters would sit under that same furnace of transformation that god you might make us different and you might be glorified in jesus name we pray amen